Well, good morning, and welcome to Harmony Vineyard's Livestream Church. Uh, we're glad you're with us today. We're doing something a little bit different today, and that is that we had asked for uh, any questions that you might have relative to the Bible or theology or current events or anything like that, and we would, uh, would attempt to answer them. I'd sort of hope this might become somewhat of a regular thing, but since I got so very few questions, I'm not sure we're going to be able to do that. But we did get a few, and then I've, uh, to kind of fill in the gaps, I've taken some that I've had asked of me over the years and thought we would uh, spend a few moments just answering those two because they may be questions that others have. And so um, the first one that we have is one that's been uh, kind of on the minds of some people, at least here recently, and that is, can Satan read our minds or know our thoughts? So, there is no single passage in Scripture that actually states this definitively. But I do think that we can infer rather convincingly that Satan cannot read your mind or your thoughts. And for that, I'll give you uh, three reasons. The first reason of which is that Satan is a created being, uh, just as the other angels, just as you and I are all created beings. And even though his initial aspirations were to be like God, he's not God's equal in any way. Uh, only God has the ability to be all-powerful and all-knowing and present everywhere at the same time. If you remember, there's a couple of passages in Scripture that define or that explain. The first one in Job chapter 1 that talks about how Satan was going to and fro throughout the earth. So it's clear that he does not have the ability to be everywhere at one time. Peter, I think, also writes that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion. Well, prowls around being the... Uh, uh, the important part of that passage because, again, it sort of shows us that he's not everywhere at once. And if he's not everywhere at once, it stands to reason he cannot be the other things, the alls, the omnis, that God is. And so, therefore, really only God has complete and continual knowledge of our mind's activities. I'll give you a couple of scriptures, I think, that sort of prove this. The first is from 1 Kings 8.39. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only, know the hearts of all the children of mankind. Uh, and I won't put these up, but I have a couple of others. Psalm 44 says in verses 20 and 21, If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? for he knows the secrets of our heart. Psalm 139, verse 4 says, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Uh, John 2, 24 and 25, But Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And there are some others that I could go through in Scripture that, that talk about the fact that Jesus knew someone's thoughts or knew what was in the heart of somebody else. And so uh, it's really God's uh, purview for that. Second point I would make is that everywhere in the Bible that mentions angels or demons and their interactions with people or God, 
information must always be exchanged through communication of some sort. Uh, and an example I might use is that when Satan was tempting Jesus right after he had been in the desert for 40 days and uh, had been fasting and so, so Satan comes and starts to tempt him, if he could have read Jesus' mind, then he, wouldn't, he would have altered the strategy that he took, which was doomed from the beginning, because three times he tries to tempt Jesus with something, and each time Jesus answers him with Scripture. So he clearly didn't know how Jesus was going to respond. Um, and then third, there is a, um, an example in Daniel chapter 2, where uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has these dreams, and he doesn't have any idea what they mean. So he demands that his sorcerers and others that are in attendance to him, and he does something that's really wise here. He asks them not only to tell him what the dream means, he asks them to tell him what the dream was. And the sorcerers are stumped because they don't know. I mean, the normal sources of power that they depend on, which we would assume are demons, can't read the king's mind. And, and only God is the one who can truly reveal such mysteries. And so uh, he ends up sending for Daniel. Well, Daniel hears from God, and God tells Daniel what the king's dreams were. And then Daniel is able to not only tell him his dream, but to interpret it as well. So I would say that if Satan had been able to read uh, the king's mind, that would have prevented Daniel from advancing throughout the kingdom and uh, so forth. So I think the answer to that question uh, is no, that Satan cannot read our minds or our thoughts. Okay, second question, and this is one I've gotten uh, several times, is how can I be certain that I have not committed the unforgivable sin? And this comes from uh, some words that Jesus spoke in um, Matthew chapter 12. And the verses are, 31 and 32, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Now, as a result of reading that, there's a lot of Christians, I think, that get paralyzed by fear. They're like, oh my gosh, what if I've done this? You know, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm, I'm done for, right? Because it can't be forgiven. Well, as we talk about all the time, context is so, so important when we're interpreting Scripture. Okay, so we really have to look at the context in which Jesus utters these words. And so, just a little bit of history, for example. First of all, the Pharisees that, that Jesus is, is addressing these comments to uh, militantly hated Christ. And so, because of that hatred, they attributed his miracles to Beelzebub, or to Satan, or the devil. Um, and so, unlike those who are afraid that perhaps they've committed this sin, the Pharisees were completely unconcerned about Christ's forgiveness. I mean, they didn't believe he was who he said he was uh, in the first place. And so with premeditation and persistence, they willfully blasphemed the Holy Spirit's testimony that Jesus was the Son of God. And so 
It's also crucial to recognize that this unforgivable sin is not just one single act that you do. It's a continuous, ongoing rejection of the truth. Okay? And so, furthermore, those who've committed this unpardonable sin have no regrets about it. And as Paul emphasizes in the book of Romans, they not only continue in their evil ways, but approve of others who do so as well. And on the converse to that, 2 Corinthians 7.10 says that godly, sour, godly sorrow brings repentance and leads to salvation. So if you're sorry for a sin and that you desire that Christ forgives you, it's proof positive that you have not rejected the Savior in your soul. We can never forget that three times Peter denied Jesus, and he denied him with vile oaths. Yet not only did Jesus forgive him, but then his confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, became the cornerstone of the entire Christian church. And finally, the Bible consistently teaches that those who spend eternity separated from God do so because they willingly, knowingly, and continuously rejected the gospel. John refers to this as the sin that leads to death. And in that sense, those who refuse forgiveness through Christ will spend eternity separated from his grace and love. But, good news, be assured that those who sincerely de desire God's forgiveness can be absolutely certain that they will never be turned away. All right, well, I hope that settles it for a few people. Here's one that's uh, a little bit more timely. This is one that I, that I got. And the question is, how can we hear from God in fear? Well, I would argue that fear isn't the problem. See, the threats that we face are, more often than not, not real threats. For example, let's just take the coronavirus. The latest statistics that I could find show that on average, you have two-tenths of one percent of a chance of actually catching the disease. Now that's not two percent, that's two-tenths of one percent. And then, if by chance you get the disease, you, at current um, the current statistics show you only have, there's only a 5% chance that it will lead uh, and will ultimately be fatal. Uh, so given the statistics, fears, fear of the disease really isn't our problem. It's anxiety. It's that uneasiness or nagging sense that something bad might happen. And at the root of anxiety is uncertainty. And if you follow Jesus, this is particularly alarming. You see, Christians have an answer to uncertainty. We can't control the future. We have very little control in general. But that's okay. Or at least it should be. We know, we know the one who controls everything. And when we believe that the world, and when we believe that the world is a fearful place that's full of bad people, when we turn to the next president or the next paycheck for certainty, we place our trust in something other than God. God is the only answer to anxiety. 
Sure, you can turn to other outlets. There's thousands of them. But they won't give you peace. Maybe they'll give you some false sense of security, some temporary relief, but it won't last. God knows that we're prone to this issue, that we're prone to grasp for something that's certain, and we're prone to grasp for it in all of the wrong places. And so that could be why he fills the Bible with all sorts of reminders not to be fearful or anxious. Here's a couple to meditate on. Isaiah 41.10 Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Then from John, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And then from Philippians, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So I would say this, if you're dealing with fear or anxiety right now, my recommendation would be go to a concordance and look up and read all of the verses in, against fear. Right? Because I think the best way to be able to hear God in fear is first to hear what God says about fear. And I think once you find that out, and are certain about that, then there's no reason to fear. And I think prayer and communicating with God will become much easier. There was a question that came in about a half hour. I don't have a slide for this one because I just got it about a half hour ago. But we're going to wing it and take a shot at this. Could the COVID-19 pandemic be viewed as an apocalyptic event? How should the church prepare itself today? Well, the answer, I think, to the first part is maybe. <laughs> I don't, none of us know. And since the time of Christ, and shortly thereafter, people have been thinking that the end was near, right? They think that every time we seem to have an uh, increase in the number of earthquakes that happen, or tidal waves, or other natural disasters or phenomenon, or not, something like 9-11 happens, there's all of these, you know, events that occur that tend to trigger that in our thinking. And uh, the simple answer is, Jesus told us we wouldn't know the day or the time. And so it's possible that this could be one of those signs, but there's just no way uh, with, to say so with any certainty. The second part, how should the church prepare itself today? Well, I think my answer here might surprise you. And the answer is it shouldn't. Now you're saying, well, why do you say that? Well, I think it's because, and I believe it's because if you're not already prepared, it's too late. And let me quote for you, or read for you a passage of scripture. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is telling some parables. And he tells the following parable that I think illustrates this point very well. 
Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here comes the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And so I think this parable clearly illustrates that if you wait until the apocalypse occurs to prepare yourself, it's too late. We need to be doing that now. We should live... Every Christian should live in a state of full preparation. Your heart should be right before God. And so uh, the answer really is, that's why I say doing so in the future doesn't do us any good. You need to be prepared now. Maybe for some of you that might mean finally deciding to give your heart to Jesus. And uh, when I'm finished with questions and Pastor Chip comes up here, he's going to lead you in a prayer uh, that will allow you to do that. All right, so we'll do a couple more. This one comes up periodically. Should Christians celebrate Christmas? <clears throat> Every year around Christmas time, you hear people voicing their concerns about whether or not Christians should celebrate Christians. They will note that the origins of Christian are pagan. Um, Others will point out that the Bible overtly denounces Christmas trees as being idolatrous, and still others suggest that Santa Claus is a dangerous fairy tale. Well, when response, in response, let me first acknowledge that when Christmas was originally instituted, December 25th was indeed a pagan festival commemorating the birthday of a false god. And this is a historical fact. But what you frequently find overlooked is that the church's choice of December 25th as a, a time to celebrate Jesus' birth was intentional. See, instead of Christianizing a pagan festival, the church establishes a rival celebration. And so while the, girl, the, the, the world has all but forgotten whatever Greco-Roman god they were, whose birthday they were celebrating then, the world is annually reminded that 2,000 years ago Jesus Christ invaded this world. And furthermore, the Bible nowhere condemns Christmas trees as idolatrous. Okay. The off-sided passage that you will hear is from Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 2 and 4. And at first blush, it might appear compelling, but if again, if you really look at the context, you will find that that's not the case. Jeremiah describes a tree that was cut out of a forest and then adorned with silver and gold and fastened with a hammer and nails so that it would not totter. It's actually a reference to wooden idols, not Christmas trees. And in fact, Christmas trees originated in Christian Germany 
2,000 years after Jeremiah's condemnation of man-made idols. Now, they they evolved over time from two different Christian traditions. One was a paradise tree that was hung with apples as a reminder of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And the other was a triangular shelf holding Christmas figurines and decorated by a star. And so in the 16th century, these two symbols kind of merged together into one, and that's what gave us our present Christmas tree tradition. And so the next Christmas, you might well find that you could use the Christmas tree in the home of an unbeliever as a springboard for an opportunity to explain the reason for the season, from the fall in paradise to the redemption of Jesus Christ. And finally, believe it or not, even Santa can be saved. Far from being a dangerous fairy tale, Santa Claus in reality is an anglicized form of the Dutch name Sinterklaas, which in turn is a reference to St. Nicholas. And according to tradition, St. Nick not only lavished gifts on needy children, but also valiantly supported the doctrine of the Trinity at the Council of Nicaea, in AD 325. Thus, Christians may legitimately look to St. Nick as a genuine hero of the Christian faith. And so this December 25th, as you celebrate the coming of Christ with a Christmas tree surrounded by presents, may the selflessness of St. Nick be a reminder of the Savior who gave the greatest gift of all. And then finally, I couldn't resist using this opportunity uh, to talk about tithing. And so the question is, it's not just is, the question is tithing for today. Um, And so research demonstrates that not only do the vast majority of Christians not tithe regularly, many give little or nothing at all. And thus, while addressing this question is incredibly convicting, it's also crucial. Crucial. Uh, As pastor and author Randy Alcorn says, said, tithing may well be regarded as the um, training wheels of giving. And as such, tithing is as important today as it ever has been. And I think everybody needs to learn Uh, what it is like to stride free and unfettered down the path of Christian stewardship. Because if we don't learn this, if in learning to give, we we are also learning to rely more heavily on our Father and less heavily upon ourselves. Those who've traveled the Calvary Road for any length of time can surely testify to the truth that God is ever faithful. Not only so, but as we weekly set set aside our tithes and offerings, we're reminded that all we are and all we hope to be is a gift from God. Furthermore, as Moses communicated to the children of Israel, we tithe so that we may learn to revere the Lord our God always. And that comes from Deuteronomy. As we all know, learning to reverence the name of God is a timeless principle as crucial today as in the days of Moses. And long before Moses, the Bible records Jacob's promise to God, of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. And long after Moses, Jesus reaffirmed the practice of tithing, not for outward appearances, 
but as an outward expression of an inward reality. And additionally, in the 4th century, the great church father Jerome echoed the words of Malachi who intimated that failing to pay tithes and offerings was tantamount to robbing God, a prescription for financial ruin. And finally, it should be noted that tithing in the Old Testament not only prepared God's people to become hilarious givers, but produced a temple of unparalleled splendor. The Israelites who were pining for the pleasures and protections of pagan Egypt when they first left. Oh, I lost, sorry, I lost my place. Uh, they were the ones who, it, that God had parted, miraculously parted the Red Sea, were eventually transformed into joyful givers. The Bible chronicles the prayer of David as he thanked God for the very privilege of being able to give to the work of the Lord. And if you remember, in terms of the Israelites, they finally had to be told, stop. Stop bringing stuff. They had so much gold and silver and other things that they couldn't use all of it. And so that's what it's talking about in being a hilarious giver. And so what began as this spiritual discipline ultimately becomes sheer delight. And honestly, there's no telling what could be accomplished in our generation if all of us would catch uh, this fever of contagious giving. Not only would, be, would we be empowered to spread the gospel around the globe, but we would be enabled to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, care for the sick, all of the things that Jesus told us that we should be doing. And so like our forefathers who founded all of the great centers of Christian education, who established countless hospitals, who funded a myriad of, of relief organizations, we still have time to leave an indelible mark on our generation if we too would become hilarious givers. Let's pray. So Father, I just give you thanks. I pray that the answers to these questions will in some way bring relief, will increase faith, will bring conviction if necessary to those who have heard. I just pray your great blessing upon all of the members of this church and all of those who are, are joining us on this live stream. Father, may you protect each and every one. Keep them healthy keep their families healthy, keep them safe. Let them not fall victim to boredom and all of the, the often bad and improper things that that boredom could lead to. Father, let us use this time to draw more deeply into your word and what you have to say to us. Thank you, Lord, for this particular moment in time. Thank you for how abundantly you bless us. Thank you that your perfect love casts out all fear. We just thank you, Father. We say we love you, 
We praise you and we thank you. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let me turn this over to Pastor Chip. Amen. Our God is so good. Can we get this turned down a little in this back monitor so it doesn't feed back? We're so excited that you watched today. We want to just pray through a couple things. And um, I just challenge you right where you're at, just bow your head right now. And we're going to invite the Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord. Father, we lift up Kyle's friend, God, that he, he shared with us that needs prayer, God. We don't know the details. We don't need to know the details, Lord, because you know them. Father, I speak to anyone who's watching who is having, um, I'm just getting a word for diverticulitis, Lord. I just command that to be healed in Jesus' name right now. Lord, we come against any fear that might be coming against people, that might be, be paralyzing people. Lord, you are able to defeat that. Lord, I also feel led to pray for someone who's unable to see a loved one due to them being in like a nursing home or something. Father, would you strengthen that person as well as that loved one they can't see? And Father, for the person who's watching who feels completely lost, completely confused, completely distraught and dismayed, Lord, would you touch them right now? Would you bring them peace beyond measure, peace that surpasses understanding? And if you're watching today and you haven't given your life to Jesus and you're saying, you know, I need that peace, well, we want to invite you to do that. I'm going to just say this prayer and I just encourage you to Repeat it after me. There's nothing magical about it. There's nothing special about the words. I'm just going to kind of give you a template. All it really is is you saying, I need Jesus, and I accept his forgiveness. And you might be saying, I don't know how it's that simple, Chip. I don't think that I'm good enough. I don't think that I'm clean enough. I don't think that I'm, I have it all together enough. It is totally and utterly that simple. He'll do all the changing. He'll do all the cleaning. He'll do all the transformation. So repeat after me if you want to accept him. Lord Jesus, I accept you as my Savior. I believe you died for me on the cross. Come into my heart. Come into my life. I make you king of all. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that, let us know. We're so excited for you. Thank you for watching today. God bless you. Our God is good. And go out. Don't go out, but do something. Do something um, to bless someone else, but do it safely. Amen.